Father, we need you this morning. We need you every morning. But as we collectively gather today to look at your word and be instructed by your spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, to our hearts. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son, just as we just sang, as sin runs deep, your grace runs deeper. I pray we would see that in the reflection of the king's heart towards the rebel this morning as we look at this text, that we would see our own hearts, and that you would move us to change. We ask that you would do it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the beginning of a chapter that some of us that have been in church for a while are somewhat familiar with. Jesus uses this framework and what's happening here to tell three stories. And again, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard these three stories, these three parables, but often we forget the context of what Jesus is talking about and how he's addressing this specific issue. Tax collectors, if you're unfamiliar, they were the crooked politicians of the time of the Bible, the time of Jesus. And then sinners were the outcasts, the social lepers, the people that were looked down on, that if somebody walked in this room and you would go, why are they in this room? That's how people looked at sinners. And Jesus was around them. They were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees, if you're unfamiliar, they were the religious, religious elite at the time. They're the head pastors. They're the people that do all the right things and say all the right things. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled about this. And they said, does Jesus even know who these people are that are around him? <laughs> Certainly if they knew who these people were, he wouldn't associate and welcome them to the table. Jesus in the context of these statements follows with three different parables. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then two lost sons. And in this last parable that he tells about these lost sons, or you might be familiar with it, known as the prodigal son, he tells this story about there's two sons, and the younger son comes to his father and says, you know what, like, I'm, 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 I'm done. <laughs> I want my inheritance. I want to go live apart from you. I want to go do what I want to do. And he rebels against his father. And his father, in love and kindness, says, here you go. I'll give it to you. Even though he knows it's not best for his son, he says, I'm going to give you what you're asking for to expose the fact that what you think you need is not really what you need. Son takes his inheritance, and as Jesus tells the story, he goes off and he spends it recklessly on wild living. And in the midst of it, he comes to the end of himself, spends all his money, he's destitute, there's a famine in the land, Jesus tells the story that way, and then he is in the darkest place he's ever been. And in that darkness, he kind of, kind of realizes, he goes, man, if I just go back, to my father, I don't even need to be a son, but maybe he'll hire me as one of his servants because his servants live better than I'm living right now. So he kind of drums up this speech that he's going to give his father as he goes back to his father. And as Jesus tells a story, what is the father doing? Waiting. He's waiting for his rebellious son to return. 
Jesus tells a story that from, uh, even though the son is far off, the father sees him, has compassion, and moves towards him, literally runs towards his son. He embraces him. The son tries to get kind of this speech out in front of him, like, I've, I've sinned, and, and the father doesn't even hear it. He throws the robe around him, puts the ring on his finger, and says, listen, you were dead. Now you're alive. You were lost. Now you're found. We're going to celebrate that you're back killed the fattened calf and we're going to celebrate. So he brings him inside and celebrates the return of the rebellious son. And the older son is working in the field in the midst of this. Finishes working in the field and as Jesus tells the story, he comes towards the house and he hears the party. And he, he finds one of the servants. He's like, what's, what's going on here? And the servant says, well, your younger brother, he was lost, he's found and he's been restored. And Jesus says that the older son is angry about this not happy. He goes to his father, and he doesn't go into the house. He's waiting. He's kind of in protest, and it says the father comes out to him. Father goes out to the older son, and the older son gives him this speech, kind of corrects their father and says, listen, this younger son of yours, he spent all of his inheritance on this wild living, and I have been serving you since day one. I've never disobeyed you, and you've never done anything like this for me father kind of shakes his head at the son and says, son, everything I have is yours. Come in, be with us. And that's how the story ends. We don't hear if the older son goes in. I think the reason we don't hear, the reason Jesus ends the story here is he's trying to hold a mirror up to these people that are grumbling and complaining. That Jesus welcomes these sinners to him. And really what that story shows us is the same thing the story in 2 Samuel 19 is going to show us this morning. It's the father's heart for the rebel. And we're going to see this morning the king's heart for the rebel. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been walking through for the last several weeks a series called We Want a King. We've been looking at the rise and fall of Israel's first three kings and a man named Saul, a man named David. We've got one more week of David and then his son Solomon. And if you've been with us, we've seen David do unbelievable things in the spirit of the Lord as he's trusted him. But as 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel starts, we see that David has started to have some cracks in his character. As he's gained power, the narrator has been dropping these little hints that David has been doing things he's not ought to be doing as king. He's taking wives he shouldn't be taking and he's beginning to objectify women. And because of that, what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you were with us two weeks ago, we see the downfall of David, and it is tragic. As he takes a woman and sexually abuses her. And he tries to cover up his sin with her husband. He ends up killing her husband. Because of this, he gets called out by the prophet Nathan. In the midst of that, he is repentant. David, his heart is crushed, and he realizes his sin, and he acknowledges his sin. His, his sin, which is different from what Saul does, he's repentant. Because of that, he's forgiven. But there's still consequences of his sin. If you're with us last week, we saw the ripple effects of the consequences of his sin with his children. And the echo effects of sexual abuse and murder and terrible things which happen in his family line. And in the midst of that, what happens is one of his sons, Absalom, who kills his brother, Earlier in the story, in chapter 13, he wants power. 
He wants to be the next one in line for the kingdom. And David is kind of sitting back on some things. So Absalom steps in and begins to manipulate the people and begins to draw the people to himself. And in the midst of that, he kicks his father off the throne and out of Jerusalem. Absalom does. And as David is leaving, people are saying all types of terrible things to him. And Absalom, in the midst of this, is gaining more power. He has no interest in serving God in the text like his father does. In the midst of it, he puts these people around him, these advisors around him, Absalom does, to tell him what to do. And one of the things they tell him to do in the midst of all the horrible things he's doing, and he does terribly tragic things. One of the things his advisor says, Look, listen, your father's on the outskirts. He's left Jerusalem. You're in power, but he's not dead yet. So let's go after him. Let's put the nail in the coffin so he can't come back and regain the throne in any way, shape, or form. Absalom thinks this is a good idea. So he takes his army and they go after King David and his men and they have this battle in the forest. And in the midst of that, King David's men win. So Absalom gets on a horse and, and tries to get away. And in the midst of him trying to get away, he gets his hair caught on this tree. Which, if you were with us last week, it's a, it's a point of irony because it says that Absalom is, man, he's unbelievably good looking from the head to the toe, and his hair talks about his hair being unbelievably thick and beautiful, and this is what leads to his demise. Gets caught on this tree, and David's general, Joab, goes up to him. Now, realize David has instructed specifically to Joab, do not kill Absalom, he is my son. Joab takes matters into his own hand, he disobeys David, and he kills him. He says, I'm going to end this right now. And he kills Absalom, and then word gets back to David. This is where we pick up our story, 2 Samuel chapter 19. And really, again, what we're going to walk through, we're only going to look at the first 30 verses, 1 through 30. I've been trying to do way too much in the text, so we're just honing in on 30 verses today. And what we're really going to see this morning is we're going to see the king's heart towards the rebel in these 30 verses. So if you have a Bible and it's not already open, open it up. You can follow along on the screen. There's Bibles in front of you if you need one. 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We're looking at three movements of this and looking at the king's heart towards the rebel. It says this, And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people still steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because... You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord that if you don't go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate. The people were told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate. And all the people came. 
before the king. Let's stop here for a minute. Let's unpack what we see here. And really what we're seeing in these eight verses is the king that weeps over his rebel child. The king that weeps over his rebel child. Again, Absalom is a mess. He has been out to get David, to kill David, to take his throne, to take his power. But you know what? He's still his son. And David is still heartbroken that he's dead. It shows us the posture of the king, and he is undone in his grief because his son has died. Now, Job doesn't feel that way, his general. Job's pretty frustrated and angry at David because he comes back in. This should be a celebration. We're back in power. And all of a sudden, they see the king weeping, and he says, what are you doing, king? Like, don't you see what we just did for you? Don't you see we've been slaving, we've been serving you, we've never disobeyed you? He sounds like the older son in Luke chapter 15. And Job wants to retain power. He's saying, listen, David, you better stop grieving and go take your seat. Because if not, I'm going to convince all the other people not to follow you. Because we're kind of done with this. He doesn't realize the king's heart for his son. Do you know we have a God that weeps? over rebellious children. Sometimes we paint this picture of this God that just has this hammer and wants to just drop it down on people that aren't following him. And yes, God is a God of judgment, but before God is a God of judgment, he's actually a God of mercy. If you read how he describes himself in Exodus 34, he is merciful and he is kind and he weeps. This God weeps over people that don't follow him. Just like we see King David weeping over his rebel child. Let's keep reading as we pick up the back end of verse 8. It says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out from the land of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent message to Zadok and Abathar, the priest, and said to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not bone? Are you not bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and also, more also, if you are not commander of my army from now in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah and Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Here's the second thing we see in God's heart or the king's heart for the rebel is that the rebel is reluctant to welcome back the true king. If you're unfamiliar, Judah is the tribe that David is from. And when he was king and he had saved them from the hand of the Philistines, as it says, like they gave their allegiance to David. But what happens is Absalom, in the midst of his sneaky, manipulative ways, have turned the hearts of the people to himself and away 
from David. And because of that, they're confused on what to do. They're saying, man, we anointed Absalom as king. He's our guy, but now he's dead. And should we bring David back and put him back on the throne? They're kind of confused by this. And David's confused by this. He's going, listen, I am your king. I am your people. Like, how are you not putting me back on the throne? Eventually, he convinces them to put him back in power. I think this is an interesting text in the context of our own lives, if we've trusted Jesus at some point in our life, maybe early on, we've walked an aisle, we've prayed a prayer, we've said, yes, I give my life to you, Jesus. You are the king of my heart. You belong on the throne of my life. And then life happens. And then sometimes through relationships, sometimes through decisions we make, we slowly turn our allegiance from King Jesus to other things. Just like the people of Judah, we put other kings on the throne of our hearts and our lives. And then when we have to make a decision of who we're going to follow, maybe you're in a relationship that's not headed in the right direction. Maybe you're in a career that's maybe not headed in the right direction because of your allegiance to Jesus. And now you're at a crossroads and you have to make a decision. Who are you going to follow in this moment? And you're back and forth and you can't figure out who you should follow because you have turned your allegiance away from Jesus and you put somebody else in the king spot of your life like Judah did with Absalom. And we just need to be aware of this. You've probably heard this illustration before, but it's like the frog that you're trying to kill in the water. Right? If you have a boiling uh, pot of hot water and you try to drop a frog in it, what's the frog going to do? It's going to jump out as soon as it feels the water. It knows this is dangerous. But if you have a pot of lukewarm water or cold water and you put the frog inside of it, it feels all kinds of good and right. But if you crank the heat up slowly, eventually the frog doesn't jump out. The frog dies. And this is so true with our hearts. When we begin to slowly follow other things other than Jesus, we get our hearts wrapped into certain things that get our claws in us. And then when we have to decide, we're confused. And the people of God are confused to not put David back on the throne because of this situation. We're going to see later in the story, if you kept reading in 1 Kings chapter 18, what Solomon does, which we'll get into, is he starts taking wives that he ought not to take, and they draw him away from trusting Jesus. And so he starts worshiping other gods of his wives, and he's compartmentalized in his faith. He still wants to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but he also wants to worship these other gods. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, the prophet of Baal, has this showdown at Mount Carmel. And what he says, he's like, you need to pick if God is God, then follow him. Stop limping between these two different opinions. And some of you in the room, you have one foot in the God camp, and you're going, okay, I love Jesus, but you have one foot in the world camp, and you're going, but I really like this thing, and it gives me something, and I like it. And you're compromised in your faith. And you need to return back just like Judah to put the rightful king on the throne where he belongs. Let's continue in. Our passage, verse 16, as we look at the king's heart for the rebel, it says, And Shimei, the son of Jeriah, the Benjamin of Barahim, hurried to come down to the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him there were a thousand men from Benjamin, Zibiah, the servant of Saul, and his 15 sons and 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan for the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. 
And Shimei, the son of Jeriah, fell down before the king. and He was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Yes, not my lord, hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take this to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abiashi, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei put to death, put to be, be put to death for this, because he has cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day the king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Third thing we see in the midst of the king's heart for the rebel is that the king pardons the rebel. The king pardons the rebel. If you remember last week, if you were with us, David's getting pushed out of his kingdom, pushed out of, physically pushed out of Jerusalem, and he's walking out with his crew, and this man... I'm going to call him Shemi, Shemail, Shemi. <laughs> he shows up. I, I pronounce it different every time, just to, just to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, so Shemi shows up, and he's on this ridge, and King David is walking out, and literally he, Shemi starts throwing rocks at him and starts cursing him out and say, man, this is your problem. This is because of your sin. You tried to steal the kingdom from Saul. And he's just saying all these horrible things to him and kind of following him all the way down. And so he's the first one as King David comes back into power to go and say, listen, I was wrong. I sinned. I shouldn't have been saying that thing. Have mercy on me, king. You know, what? the number one show on Netflix right now, I don't know if you're paying attention to that at all, right? You guys seen it? It's the Dahmer show. This story on Jeffrey Dahmer. If you're not familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, man, he just did horrible, horrible things to humans. And he was put in prison and ended up dying in prison. Somebody killed him in prison. And the show is somewhat controversial uh, on a couple different levels, even of how it's portrayed and, and what people think. Is, it, is that really true? Is that honest? But the people that I've talked to that have even watched the show, and, they've got, and most people, that like, they like to watch dark things that I have conversations with. They go, I couldn't even get through after the first episode. Like, I had to stop watching. As an indicator of, like, this is, like, terrible, terrible stuff that's happening, and they're just showing it on screen. One of the things they don't talk about or they don't show, as I, I was talking to somebody that watched the whole series this last week and had conversations with them, and uh, I was just asking, you know, what, what happens at the end of the show? And they were kind of telling me, and... and uh, the end of the show, if you're familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer's story at all, like there's pretty substantial evidence that he comes to Jesus in prison. And he even confesses on video that he follows Jesus. Now, again, we can't see the human heart. We don't know if he was really making a genuine decision for that at all. But if we believe that he actually turned and from his sins and now walks with Jesus and all the terrible things he does, you realize one day you're going to turn in heaven and Jeffrey Dahmer is going to be next to you. How do you feel about that? You should feel unsettled at some level <laughs> because of the pain and the harm and what he did to people if you know the story. 
but you should also realize that this is what the gospel is. That no matter what you've done, what tragedies, what atrocities you've done, that this God of mercy, he moves towards the rebel. He offers forgiveness. He offers grace. He offers compassion for somebody that turns away from their sins and accepts the gift of Jesus. And this is what happens in our text with Shemi. Like he's done all kinds of wrong to the king. And this is the beautiful, scandalous nature of the gospel, that the king pardons rebels. That the only way that true justice for sin and true mercy for the sinner can come together is at the cross. I was having a conversation back in college with, uh, I, I was a part of the women's basketball team at the University of Arizona. I was a practice player there for a year, so I played women's basketball, which is not a joke you can really make anymore. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I was on the women's team, and then I became a manager, so I was traveling with the team, and I remember one flight as I was having a conversation with this gal on the team, and we were flying to Oregon to play Oregon and Oregon State, and uh, she's right behind me in the seat, and we're writing on her notebook back and forth, and in the midst of it, I'm trying to expose her to who Jesus is, that he offers forgiveness and love, and she can have that. It can be, she can be free again. And she writes on this note back and forth to me. You know what she writes? She goes, but you don't know what I've done. I said, Krista, that doesn't matter. You don't understand the depths of what Jesus does for you on the cross, that the wrath of God is poured out onto Jesus at the cross. So Jeffrey Dahmer's sin, if he accepts Jesus, is poured out on the cross at Jesus, and he's forgiven for what he has done. It's hard for us to understand that, right? We want to see people change, and we go, well, they did too many horrible things, but this God offers pardon to the rebel. And we see it in the text in verse 21. If you look back, Abishai He's just like the older son, and he's just like us often. He goes, he deserves death for what he's done. He doesn't deserve pardon. He deserves death. And David says, no. He deserves death, but I'm going to give him grace. <laughs> Another example in the Bible, if you're familiar, man, um, Jonah uh, he runs from Nineveh. He's a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, I want you to deliver this message of compassion, this message of mercy to the Ninevites. And he goes the total opposite direction. You remember the story, right? And God uses certain things to bring him back to Nineveh, and we see the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh at the end of the book, in chapter 4. Because we could think, well, like, he doesn't want to go there because they're, man, they're dangerous people. Right? Jeffrey Dahmer looks like an angel compared to the Ninevites. The Ninevites did terrible, terrible things to humans. And God is moving towards the rebel and the compassion towards this city. And we find out that Jonah doesn't want to go there, not because he's scared for his life, not because he doesn't know how to deliver the message that God gives him. What does it say in the back end of the text? It says in verse 2 of chapter 4, he goes, Man, I don't want to go there because I know you're a God of compassion. And you're actually going to forgive these people. And I don't think they should be forgiven. How many times are we like the older son? And we don't allow the rebel to come forward because we're judgmental. And we go, well, they need to clean themselves up a little bit first before they come to Jesus. I need to see what they're doing. And Jesus welcomes the sinners that come to him. He welcomes them. 
I want you just to imagine who would be the worst type of person that would walk through those doors right now? What if somebody walked in with a KKK outfit on? What if somebody that was a drag king walked into the room? What if somebody with a Trump hat, a Biden hat? Fill in the blank for yourself. They walked in this room, would they be welcome? Would they? That would be really hard for me on a lot of levels with some of those people. But the gospel is offered for the rebel. Not for the people that are clean, not for the people that have cleaned up their act, not for the people that are just kind of bad, but uh, they need Jesus. No, for the depths of sin, for the worst of humanity, Jesus comes and says, this is for you too. Do you understand the heart of the king? There's no other religion that the God offers rescue for those types of people. Every other religion, you've got to clean yourself up. Your good deeds apt outweigh your bad deeds, and hopefully you're good enough or your sacrifice enough. No, Jesus is the sacrifice for us that follow Christianity, that follow the Bible. He welcomes the rebel. So we kind of finish up our text in this story. There's one last section that we're going to look through, verses 24 through 30. Before we get to that, it feels like Mephibosheth is the only one that really gets this in the story. And if you've been with us, we walked through Mephibosheth a couple of weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And his story, his background, he is Saul's grandson. He's Jonathan's son. And it says in the text in 2 Samuel chapter 4, he gets picked up by his nurse when he's five. And, 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 and hey, she runs out and she drops him. And both his feet are lame. He cannot walk. About 15 or 20 years go by, David finally gets into power. And one of David's things is he wants to go after Mephibosheth to show him mercy, to show him love, to invite him to the table. Shibbetheth is a person of shame. He's not in a good space. And he gets invited to the king's table because of the goodness and the loving kindness of the king. Last week we saw as David is getting pushed out of Jerusalem, he gets pushed out. And Zibiah, who is Mephibosheth's right-hand man, comes to him, and David's like, where is Mephibosheth? Like, and Zibiah goes, he didn't want to go with you. I, I asked him, and he, he wants to stay back. And so David believes him in the moment. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to give him all your land. And Zibiah's like, okay, good, this is what I like. And they leave. As David comes back in, this is where the story picks up in verse 24. It says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. First of all, let's just recognize that would be a lot of work for Mephibosheth. He cannot walk. Somehow he gets to the king as the king is coming back in. It says, and he neither had taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day the king came back safely. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, my king, my servant deceived me. And your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on and go with the king. For your servant is lame. And he slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before the Lord 
the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right do I have then to cry to you, the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? He kind of stops Mephibosheth mid, stop, stop talking. He says, I've decided. You and Zibia shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let it take, take it all. Since my lord, the king has come safely home. Now, when you read commentators, most commentators think, like, I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth and Zibia is the one lying. We don't really know because the text doesn't tell us, but because of his appearance, because he mourns the king's absence when he leaves and what the text says, most commentators, again, think that Mephibosheth is being honest and that Zibia is the one that has lied. And Zibia is there. We just saw that in the text. He's around, so when Mephibosheth comes to King David, Zibia's in the background, he's there, and what does David do? He says, okay, in verse 30, or verse 29, he says, here's what we're going to do, we're going to divide the land. I already gave everything to Zibia, but now we're going to divide the land between the two of you. Why does David do this? It's interesting to me, because I go like, you should give it all back to him. If it's true, like, why does this, this Zibia should get punished for what he did. And I'm curious, and again, this is just my take on it. I'm curious if what David is doing is he's testing both of them in the moment. He's looking at both of them, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to say I'm going to divide the land between you. And in Luke chapter 15, the father says, I'm going to divide the property between you. I think this is also a nod to what we're going to see in a couple of weeks in Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon was the wisest king. These two women come to Solomon, both claiming that this baby is theirs, if you know the story. And Solomon says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to cut the baby in half. And the one woman comes forward and says, don't do that. Like, let her have the baby. And Solomon goes, okay, I know it's actually your baby. Because you would have the heart of a mother that wouldn't allow that to happen. Is David doing the same thing in this text, in this moment, to test who is actually in his allegiance? And I love Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. He says, let him take it all. And he says, since my Lord the King has come home safely. Here's what Mephibosheth understands that we need to understand. He understands that the King's presence is better than the King's possessions. King's presence. He's after King David's presence. He's mourned. He's been gone. Now he's come home safely and he just wants to be around him. He just wants to be at his table. He doesn't care about the things that the king offers him. He goes, let Zibia have all of it. I just want you. Men, women, could we be those types of people that we would say we just want Jesus? The God of the Bible offers us lots of things, lots of blessings, and we can get caught into believing that we care more about the blessings than we do about the person giving the blessings, if we're honest. John Piper says it this way. He says, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever saw and the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, man, that would be good. Could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? That's what we need to understand. That's about being with the king. 
being in his presence, not about what he gives us, but his presence to be with him. And the rebel gets that invitation as well. Would we be people that love the rebel as Jesus does? Would we be people that care more about the king's presence and being in the presence of Jesus than we do about the things that Jesus offers? Let's be those types of people that care more about the king's presence than the king's possessions. We're going to sing a song as we close this morning called Jesus is Better. And there's a line in that song that says, then all my comfort, Jesus is better. Then all the things we just listed that John Piper said, all the, the great things that you can ever have, but if Christ isn't there, it doesn't matter. Then all my comfort, Jesus is still better. Help my heart believe that this morning. Then we're going to sing a song that is called My Living Hope. And the idea that Jesus is our living hope. He is the king that is after our hearts, that he weeps for the rebels, that he offers pardon to the rebels, that we need to take the things we put on the throne where he belongs, take them off, and put him rightfully back on the throne. That your living hope is not based in your bank account. Your living hope is not based in your relationship status. Your living hope is not based in your career. Your living hope is not placed in the things we often get our worth and our value from. Our living hope is in Jesus. Let's ask God to change us and believe that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you're a king that pursues our rebel hearts. You're a king that loves us. You're a king that when we go back and forth, you still offer us grace, put you back on the throne, and we need to do that. Pray that you would give us hearts of compassion and mercy, just like your son. Pray that you would meet us and help us realize that being in your presence is more important than the possessions you provide. And God, would you change us? We ask that you would do it this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.